Welcome to the Ship Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of this week's precious metals news. It's Friday, August 28th. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. Okay, so this episode of the show is going to be a little bit different. I'm actually recording this on Wednesday evening. I'm going to be traveling on Friday, so basically I had a choice of don't do anything or pre-record something. So I thought I would try to put together some big picture perspective on what's going on in the economy. Now, I've touched on a lot of this in the past in bits and pieces, but I want to do my best to give a succinct overview of what we're seeing that dates back a little further than the arrival of COVID-19. Now, as far as the news goes, it's really been pretty quiet in terms of the precious metals markets. Of course, we had the big spike to back over $2,000 an ounce for gold when everybody found out that Warren Buffett was interested in the yellow metal. But it pretty quickly corrected again, and we seem to have settled into a range between $1,900 and $1,950 an ounce. The biggest newsmaker so far this week was the new home sales figures. They blew away expectations in July, coming in at the highest level since 2006. This comes on the heels of a 24.7% spike in existing home sales, according to the National Realtors Association data that came out last week. So a lot of people are taking this as a sign of a strengthening economy. People are buying houses. Anything to feed the myth, right? So we haven't seen home sales like this since 2006. You do remember 2006, don't you? That was the height of the housing bubble. That didn't end well, and honestly, I have a feeling this one won't end well either. It's the same root cause, too. Mortgage rates are like 2.5%, and it's fueling another bubble. Peter Schiff talked about it in his podcast this week. I'll post that on the show notes page, and you can check that out for yourself. The other big deal this week will happen on Thursday when Jerome Powell gives his speech at Jackson Hole. If he sounds remotely dovish, it will probably give gold another little boost. But whether he sounds dovish or not, I'm pretty certain you won't see the Fed normalizing interest rates or ending QE anytime soon. That's just not in the playbook. And so that kind of brings us to the subject at hand. Now, people have a short memory, right? Our brains tend to operate on this 24-hour news cycle. So if you ask the average person why the economy is struggling right now, they're going to say it's because of the coronavirus. And in a sense, they're not wrong. Well, I mean, it's not really the virus. It's the government response to the virus, right? But regardless, it has accelerated a meltdown. But it is a meltdown that was already underway. And virtually nobody seems to realize that. That's why I think it's important to trace the timeline of all of this so you can actually see how the government and the Fed have created this boom-bust cycle and understand that we were hurtling toward bust before the pandemic. Now, we're just hurtling toward bust even faster because the very things that the Fed has done in response to the government shutdown of the economy are the exact policies that got us into this mess in the first place and have, in fact, exacerbated a mess for decades. I've said this before. You can't grasp the economic big picture without really understanding how 
Federal Reserve monetary policy drives the boom-bust cycle. I mean, the effects of all other government policies work within the Fed's monetary framework, right? Money printing and interest rate manipulations fuel booms, and the inevitable attempt to return to normalcy precipitates busts. In the simplest terms, easy money blows up bubbles, bubbles pop, and set off a crisis, wash, rinse, repeat, over and over again. So what I want to do today is is take us back in time, a little trip back in time, all the way back to the 1970s. Now, you will recall that is when Richard Nixon severed the last vestiges of the gold standard and turned the dollar into a pure fiat currency. Nixon also implemented a lot of awful economic policies, including wage and price controls. The result? Stagflation. No economic growth coupled with runaway price inflation, something the Keynesians claimed couldn't happen, by the way. But when you remove all of the restraints on money printing, money printers are going to print. I mean, I could spend an hour talking about the missteps of the 1970s, but I don't really have time, so I'm going to forge ahead. So enter Paul Volcker. He was actually appointed to head up the Fed by Jimmy Carter, who incidentally started undoing some of Nixon's regulations as well. But we generally associate Volcker with Reagan because the president had his back. Volcker allowed interest rates to adjust upward, as they should when you have price inflation. In fact, interest rates got up to like 20%. Now, can you imagine a 20% interest rate today with all of the debt in the economy? I mean, it was pretty painful then. But it did allow the economy to reset. Unfortunately, it merely set the stage for the Fed to blow up a series of bubbles. So here are the mechanics of how all of this works. In practice, when the economy slows or enters into a recession, central banks like the Fed drive interest rates down and they launch quantitative easing programs to stimulate the economy. Low interest rates encourage borrowing and spending. The flood of cheap money Uh, that's suddenly available allows consumers to consume more. So that's why they call it stimulus. It's, It's stimulating consumption. It also incentivizes corporations and government entities to borrow more money and spend more money. Coupled with quantitative easing, the central bank can pump billions or even trillions of dollars of new money into the economy through these loose monetary policies. In effect, QE is a fancy term for printing lots of money. The Fed doesn't literally have a printing press in the basement of the Eccles building, you know, running off dollar bills, but it generates the same practical effect. The Federal Reserve digitally creates money out of thin air and uses the new dollars to buy securities and government bonds, thereby putting the cash using air quotes, directly into circulation. QE not only boosts the amount of money in the economy, it also has a secondary function. As the Federal Reserve buys U.S. Treasury bonds, it monetizes government debt. The central bank can also buy financial instruments like mortgage-backed securities, like it did during QE1 in 2008. This effectively serves as a bank bailout. Big banks get to remove the worthless assets from their balance sheet and then shift them to the Fed's balance sheet. Theoretically, this makes the banks more solvent and encourages them to lend more money, and that helps ease the credit crunch that occurs when banks become financially shaky. So this monetary policy results in a temporary boom. 
All of that new money has to go somewhere, right? It could result in rising consumer prices. So that's what we call inflation, although the actual money printing is, in fact, the inflation. But generally, it has pumped up the prices of assets like real estate and the stock market, and it creates this fake wealth effect. People feel wealthier because they see the value of these assets rapidly increasing. So they have paper profits. With plenty of debt-driven spending and rapidly increasing asset prices, the economy grows, I mean, sometimes even at a staggeringly fast pace. And it's interesting, too, because as these assets appreciate in value, they become collateral for even more loans and, you know, create an even bigger uh, balloon of debt. So in theory, all of this stimulus will will lead to a recovery. And once the apparent recovery takes hold, the Fed tightens its monetary policy. It ends QE programs, and then it begins to nudge interest rates back up. When the recovery appears to be in full swing, the central bank may even shift to quantitative tightening, so shrinking its balance sheet and and sucking cash out of the uh, economy. During the boom, governments, consumers, and corporations, they'll pile up enormous amounts of debt. Rising interest rates increases the cost of servicing all of that debt, and they also discourage new borrowing, so the easy money dries up. This speeds up the onset of the next recession, and then the cycle repeats itself. So let's go back and look at how all of this kind of played out. In October 1987, the stock market crashed. You might remember that. It's known as Black Monday. The following year, inflation rose above 5%, and that prompted then-Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan to raise interest rates to a peak of 9.75% in late 88. This led to a mild recession in the early 1990s, so Greenspan pushed rates down to a low of 3% late in August 1992. Then he slowly began to nudge rates upward in 94, but the Fed never got rates anywhere near the pre-recession level of 9.75. With the economy plugging along, rates peaked at 6% in February of 95, and from there, Greenspan held rates in that 5% range all the way through 2001. As the New York Times put it, Greenspan makes a winning bet in the mid-1990s, resisting pressure to raise rates as unemployment declines. He argues that increased productivity, including the fruits of the computer revolution, have increased the pace of sustainable growth. So in December 1996, the dot-com bubble was in full swing. Greenspan actually warned of irrational exuberance in the markets, even as he fed the irrational exuberance with artificially low, at least for the time, interest rates. And then the dot-com bubble popped in the spring of 2001. So what was the response? Greenspan slashed rates, eventually dropping them all the way to 1% in June of 2003. And this set the stage for the 2008 financial crisis. The Fed began nudging rate higher in the summer of 2004. And by February of 2005, we were already seeing ripples of trouble in the overinflated housing market. But the Federal Reserve continued nudging rates up. Of course, mortgage rates moved up along with the federal funds rate. More homeowners began to default. In late 2007, the bottom completely fell out, and in 2008, the entire system imploded, kicking off the Great Recession. So by December 2008, the interest rates was at zero, and it stayed there until 2015. 
The Fed really didn't try to tighten in earnest until 2018. We we had four rate hikes in eight uh, in 2018, and the Fed even started to shrink its balance sheet that year. Remember that? In fact, uh, balance sheet reduction was on autopilot, and that's when the stock market tanked in December of 2018. Peter Schiff was on Fox Business right before the Fed meeting in uh, December of. 2018, and he predicted it would be the last rate hike, and the next move would be a rate cut. And he nailed it. The Fed cut rates three times in 2019, and even restarted quantitative easing, although they refused to call it quantitative easing. And that brings us to the pandemic. You see, we were at the end of the cycle before the coronavirus. We were at the at the uh, the edge of the collapse. The air was already leaking out of the bubble, and the Fed was desperately trying to keep the air in. The central bank had already pivoted back to extraordinary monetary policy. Powell and Company just doubled down when the pandemic hit. But it's the same plays out of the same playbook, and it's going to yield the exact same result. With QE infinity that we have now, the Fed stopped the bleeding, at least for the time being. We have record levels in the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. The housing market is booming, but it is doomed to collapse. It was doomed to collapse before coronavirus, just like it was doomed to collapse in 1999 and in 2007, except now everything is magnitudes bigger. The debt is bigger. The bubbles are bigger. And that means the collapse is going to be bigger. This is why I'm so confident when I say we're not about to have a quick recovery from the coronavirus. Even if we just erased coronavirus from existence, the recovery would just be back to the leaky bubbles we had at the beginning of the year, except it would be even more bubbly with trillions more in debt. More on the Fed balance sheet. Everything has been increased by magnitudes of trillions thanks to the response to the coronavirus. The coronavirus cure was the same thing that made the economy sick in the first place. So as I say pretty much every episode, you need to get ready. You need to get ready for the crash that has been inevitable ever since 2008. A shift gold precious metal specialist can help you do just that. I recommend just call 1-888-GOLD-160 or you can just shoot them an email at info at shiftgold.com. Those guys can help you out. They can tell you more details about what's going on today and how to prepare for it. So that is a gold wrap for this week. I hope you enjoyed this little special episode. You can get more details on all of the stories of the week and more and keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week at shiftgold.com news. If you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap over at iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play, or of course on the Shift Gold YouTube channel. You'll find links to all that stuff on the show notes page. I appreciate you listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next time.